You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. If there was an underlying thesis for this particular Sunday's Soulcraft lesson, it would be that theology really matters to relationships, not just therapy. Therapy is important. There's so much to be learned on how to relate that is of great therapeutic significance. I would really stress that. So the underlying thesis there is, but I sometimes think Christians get beguiled by the kind of attractiveness of therapy because it's so practical and you can really put it to work right away. But where therapy really counts is when there's a strong theological base that we really understand that we're made in God's image and that to be marked by the cross is the significant foundation for anything that's positive therapeutically in our lives. So I'm starting with Romans 4 and uh, Hopefully, everybody's got an outline before you. Verse 20 of Romans chapter 4. And before I say, listen carefully, this is God's word, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, for your watch care, for your blessing, for your love and mercy. Please help us now as we think together in the name of Christ, to the glory of the Father, and in the Spirit this Lord's day. Amen. Verse 20 of Romans 4, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. And I guess as Mark was preaching, I the question crossed my mind, am I Abraham to my children? Am I Abraham to my wife? Abraham's faith was credited to him, but not to him alone that he becomes the example, he becomes the prototype, he becomes the paradigm, he becomes our father in the faith because he lived by faith, not by works. So do the people around me, do the people around you know, know that your life is lived by faith and it's a credit not only to you, but to them because of the example of your faith in God, in Christ, in the Spirit. Theology is the foundation for these soulcraft relationships, I think. Uh, By way of introduction, if you're looking at the outline, uh, these five sort of summarize the, the lessons that we've been talking about these last few weeks. In brief, number one, relationships are the proving ground of the gospel. I really believe that how we relate to one another is our strongest witness. And Philippians 1, 9 through 11 is kind of our key text 
for this Soulcraft series. This is my prayer that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you discern what's best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. And number two, self-worth is not a human achievement, but a divine endowment that we have been created, humankind has been created in God's image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. That is the most profound truth about us. We really have been made in God's image. And that line from 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we discussed, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And the, the freedom of that. Yeah, I, my knowledge is partial. Partial about myself and partial about everything else. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You are already fully known. I am already fully known. And that should bring some comfort to us in our relationship with God and others. We're not cosmic orphans. Number three, God designed us in such a way that the measure of our communion with him is reflected in the depth of our relationships with others. And that was kind of our friendship theme, our self-theme, our friendship theme, uh, that really communion with God and community are, are linked and they're tied together. Uh, those passages from John 15 where Jesus says, you are my friends, Ruth 1, uh, where Ruth is pledging her fidelity and, and long, exclusive relationship with Naomi. And then 1 Samuel 20:42, the conversation between Jonathan and David. Let the Lord be between you and me, between my seed and, and your seed forever and ever. And then last week, 4 and 5, these two loves, marital love and divine love, romantic love and redemptive love, are meant to support and illuminate each other the lesser love, and it, you, you might find yourself just sort of uh, having experienced deep loving friendship or deep loving marriage. It's hard to call that a lesser love, but that's what we are. We're calling those lesser loves because of the greater love. God loves God's love for us is foundational to those lesser loves. And yet the lesser love is an analogy for the greater love. That's how God's designed it. That the way we love one another does have a, an interface with God's love for us. Number five, to insist on finding the ultimate soul-saving love in one's spouse is to drain the energy and joy right out of marriage. Your spouse cannot be your savior. No friend can be your savior. No matter how real and beautiful the oneness of the marriage relationship may be, we are reminded of our need for the greater love. We need a savior. And there's only one savior there is uh, for us. It can't be found in someone else. So that brings us to our topic today of, of soulmates. And uh, as I was explaining uh, before class, we're just sort of, lightly uh, topping, uh, coming down on these topics, but hopefully they're suggestive to you of uh, more work and more thought that could be given uh, to these topics. Weddings are easy. 
marriages are difficult. And I would love a 15-minute discussion on that because it would drive the point home. Uh, weddings are easy, marriages are difficult, but that's not how everybody looks at the wedding ceremony, is it? They're really expensive. As marriages have become more difficult, weddings have become more expensive. Uh, Eugene Peterson writes this, weddings are easy, marriages are difficult, the couple wants to plan a wedding. I want to plan a marriage, He's speaking as a pastor. They want to know where the bridesmaids will stand. I want to develop a plan for forgiveness. They want to discuss the music of the wedding. I want to talk about the emotions of the marriage. I can do a wedding in 20 minutes with my eyes shut. A marriage takes year after year of alert, wide-eyed attention Weddings are important. They are beautiful. They are impressive. They are emotional. Sometimes they're expensive. We weep at weddings. We laugh at weddings. We take care to be at the right place at the right time and say the right words. Where people stand is important. The way people dress is significant. Every detail, this flower, that candle is memorable. All the same, weddings are easy. But marriages are complex and difficult. In marriage, we work out in every detail of life the promises and the commitments spoken at the wedding. In marriage, we develop the long and rich life of faithful love that the wedding announces. The event of the wedding without the life of marriage doesn't amount to much. The event of the wedding without the life of marriage doesn't amount to much. Theology in its relationship to therapy when it comes to marriage. Uh, about a week or so ago, David Brooks wrote an article about marriage when life asks for everything. And he compared two models. And I found it interesting, his comparison. He talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and a recent book by... Um, recent book by entitled All or Nothing Marriage by Eli Finkel. Uh, and he compared Maslow's hierarchy of needs that begins with uh, satisfying your physical needs and then your safety needs and then belonging and loving relational needs and then self-esteem, ego needs, and finally self-actualization. So it's, it's like all of life is designed so that you get to your sense of self the real you, self-actualization, which is a real, it's a, an inverse of really a biblical view because as you grow as a Christian, it's not so much your self-actualization and your self-fulfillment as the self used for the sake of others. I mean, the principle of the world basically is my life for yours. No, that's the principle of the cross, my life for yours. The principle of the world is your life for mine. And uh, Brooks often uh, is really good at tapping into what's real and what's true. I wish he were uh, more articulate when it comes to actually what's the foundation for what is real and true. But he talks about four kinds of happiness, and this is his order. 
You start with material well-being, then personal achievement, and then giving to the generations, generativity, and then fourth, moral joy. So as you learn and grow and mature as a person, you're finding fulfillment in giving yourself away. And at the end of the article, he talks about the fact that since 1975, uh, parents have taken much more of a shared interest in parenting. Statistics show that since 1975 to 1995, that couples are taking a greater share and responsibility in their uh, parenting. Today, parents spend almost three times more three times more hours in shared parenting than parents in 1975 did. Finkel says this is an extension of Maslow Rogers' pursuit of self-actualization. In other words, in the process of this, I'm fulfilling myself. But Brooks says, I'd say it's evidence of a repudiation of it. I'd say many of today's parents are moving away from the me generation ethos and toward covenant and fusion and surrendering love. None of us lives up to our ideals in marriage or anything else, but at least we can aim high. And he would see Maslow's hierarchy as the wrong way to approach it and the idea of finding fulfillment in really self-denial, which we know is what Christ has said. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself uh, in his work. Soulcraft number two. Soulcraft integrates the work of the cross into the life of the marriage in three ways. The powerful analogy between our love for the Lord and our love for one another, for the one we marry. And the comprehensive and costly vowed commitment of all that we have, all that we are and all that we have in an exclusive permanent relationship. And the spiritual discipline of sacrificial love in marriage. There's an anecdote that uh, comes to my mind in the process of, uh, of thinking about the relationship of our love for the Lord and our love for um, our spouse um, being marked by the cross. Uh, at Cherry Creek Presbyterian Church in Denver, Colorado, it's a really beautiful modern sanctuary, but what isn't modern um, is a 12-foot, very thick wooden cross that is just anchored in the platform close to the pulpit, but not blocking the view of the pulpit. And whenever you walk into that sanctuary, your eyes immediately focus on the cross. This is impossible not to. And behind the cross, then, is a beautiful series of stained glass windows of the life of Christ from top to bottom. And it's situated in such a way that the sun on Sunday morning is invariably pointing through those stained glass windows. So, I mean, it's really, uh, for an iconoclastic like myself, it's really very moving. Um, and I, it's great to see that, and I'm, architecturally, it's wonderful. And I remember a conversation with an engaged couple. And they, we walked into the sanctuary, and we were kind of positioning ourselves. Uh, I was just sort of walking it through with them. And the bride-to-be looked at me and said, is there any way we can get rid of the cross? Because it's going to get in the way of the pictures. And I just, you know, I, I thought to myself, uh, 
well, I didn't think very long. I think I just blurted out, no, it's anchored. I mean, it's, it wasn't movable. You couldn't take it out. It was designed that way. It was actually designed that way. You would think that, you know, we can lift this cross out for pageants or for whatever we're going to put on the platform or whatever. That would have been the practical thing to do, but no. No, it was by the architectural design and by the church leadership, you can't get rid of the cross. Uh, I'd like that to be, that little uh, reality, to be true in our lives. And this relationship between theology and therapy, that the cross keeps intruding, as it were, into the relationship. You can't get outside of the vision of the cross. And so it is always Christ's love for me that is foundational to my love for the other, for my wife, for my kids, for my friends. Um, so like Jonathan said to David, let the Lord be between you and me. Well, it is a crucified Lord that is between you and me. A Lord who gave and sacrificed himself that we might find peace and joy and relationship and love and communion. And that then is the heart. So, you know, we're a great people on talking about, I mean, you can... You can always get a lot of people interested in the therapeutic aspects of relationships. We just like thinking about that. I like thinking about that. So if you're going to talk about making time for one another or effective communication between each other, balancing family and work, uh, talking about how to confront honestly and lovingly with charity, uh, how to build your spouse spouse's self-esteem, uh, experiencing good sex, sharing household tasks. These are some of the things that the therapeutic approach focuses on. And I don't want you to hear me at all wrong. I think all of those are worthy of discussion, worthy of prayer, worthy of thinking about. It is the practical side. But I also want us to really see that this theology of what God in Christ has done for us really matters to that therapeutic side. So marriage isn't the great experiment. Marriage is that costly commitment. The text that I like uh, the best for, for marriage, and I would always ask um, couples what, what text they wanted me to preach on for the meditation, and then I'd try to weave it into uh, the, the marital preparation as well. But if they didn't have a text... It was interesting, a lot of couples hadn't thought along those lines. You can think back to some of you when you were thinking of getting married, and what if the pastor had said to you, what text should I preach on? Um, and you might have looked blankly at the pastor at that moment. I don't know. Um, but the text, my, uh, the text that I go to uh, when there isn't um, a chosen text would be Colossians 3.12, uh, the shared work of marriage text. Uh, it goes like this. Therefore, as God's chosen people. And you can so easily think in terms of chosen couple. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now, you know, you're, you're looking into the eyes of a bride and a groom and you're saying, a chosen couple, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and goodness and humility and gentleness. 
and bear with one another. Bear with one another as the Lord has bared with you. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as you teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your heart, let the peace of Christ rule, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And whatever you do, in word or deed, let it be done all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And there's just so much there. You know, the clothing? Uh, because at a wedding, you know, everybody has paid attention to what they're wearing. And you're talking now not about the, the wedding clothing, but you're talking about the marriage clothing. Compassion, kindness, goodness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then the chief work of marriage, the most important work of marriage is forgiveness. To bear with one another as Christ, to, to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. And over all these, and the, the world, I think, tends to sell marriage short. And I think the Bible and Christ builds marriage up. That really, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity, you really can have a kind of perfect unity. And that doesn't need to be mocked or um, diminished in any way. Uh, and the beauty of that, I think, uh, and then, you know, oftentimes, she receives a name and he gives a name. But then you say at the end, let whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. May you be known by this name, the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see how much is brought together, the beauty of that marital relationship that's in Christ. Turn the page with me. And let's go down to number three. Point I'm making is that your marital relationship, and, and I've already talked about the self, and I've already talked about friend in previous weeks, so I'm not concentrating on this. We talked about the beauty of wholeness as a single person that is brought into a oneness relationship and that both the wholeness of the single and the oneness of the marriage is a witness to God in Christ. Number three, there is no assurance against heartbreak, but if one's heart gets broken, it's better for it to be broken out of self-sacrifice than out of selfishness. And Mike Mason's quote in the box is worth reflecting on. Marriage comes with a built-in abhorrence of self-centeredness. Amidst all of our pleasant little fantasies of omnipotence and blamelessness and self-sufficiency, marriage explodes like a bomb. It runs an aggravating interference pattern and unrelenting guerrilla warfare against selfishness. It attacks people's vanity and lonely pride in a way that few other things can, tirelessly exposing the necessity of giving and sharing the absurdity of blame. Uh, that makes me think of 
Kennerly, our, our youngest, married to Patrick, and uh, Patrick was in business in, in Phoenix. This was before they came to live with us and both of them uh, doing an MDiv at Beeson. And uh, they had been married, I don't, I don't remember for how long, six months or something like that. And Kennerly, and they really didn't have friends yet in Phoenix at all. And Patrick was really late. Um, business kept him uh, at work, and he got home late, and Kennerly had fixed a meal, and, and she was upset, waiting and, and not hearing. And he walked in the door, and, and she was provoked, and the whole evening went downhill. Uh, and in the morning, Kennerly realized that all she had done was punish herself by being provoked to Patrick that Patrick was her only friend in Phoenix, Arizona. And she had gotten mad at her only friend. And all that did was hurt her. Uh, and I think she goes back to that, that one incident. Um, and that probably has uh, spared a lot of arguments. Uh, why get mad at your best friend? Uh, there's got to be another way. <laughs> uh, marriage has, is a built-in abhorrence to self-centeredness. Number four, mutual submission in Christ is key to the joy of marriage. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll just make a few comments on Ephesians 4, which is, again, a, it's a wonderful text. Um, Did I say Ephesians 4? I meant Ephesians 5. I know you're familiar with this text, Ephesians 5. Uh, you've got to start this text. If you're going to segment the text, you've got to start in verse 21. You can't start in verse 22. <laughs> uh, and yet I have actually heard sermons that start in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And not taking in verse 21 just doesn't make any sense to the passage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is our mutual submission in Christ. Everybody... Husbands, wives, children, all are covered by 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what's really interesting is the poetry of balance, the poetry of mutuality that exists in this passage in Ephesians, because wives will be told to submit and husbands will be told to sacrifice. And they're to sacrifice as Christ sacrificed for the church and as Christ sought to present a holy and blameless, cleansed bride so the husband desires that kind of high achievement for the sake of his wife. Submission and sacrifice. And it's not sacrifice a one-time heroic kind of sacrifice. It's the daily sacrifice and it's the daily submission. Now, how do you distinguish between daily submission and daily sacrifice? Aren't they almost synonymous? 
daily submission, daily sacrifice. And then in this passage, the wife is told to respect her husband. The husband is told to love his wife. So you've got love and respect. Now, how are you really going to distinguish between those two? A really loving and really respecting relationship. Sounds awfully mutual to me. Awfully synonymous. To really love somebody is to really respect somebody. To really respect somebody is to really love them. I mean, how do you, how do you distinguish between those two? And then, uh, you know, the, the head language applies to the husband of it. The body language applies to the wife. And again, you've got this paired relationship, head and body. You don't want a bodiless head. You don't want a headless body. You've got head and body uh, underscoring again this mutual. It's a beautifully woven together uh, passage. Uh, and at the center of it all is Christ and Christ's sacrifice for the sake of the church. And that that overarching theological model uh, develops whatever therapeutic, therapeutic model is between the husband and the wife. So uh, look at this passage uh, sometime. Now, uh, you know, my st- students react to this. Well, can you just say the same thing for both then? Can you, what you say to the husband, can it be said to the wife? What you say to the wife, could it be said to the husband? Is there any distinction here then? Because I'm making this case, this strong case for mutuality between them, that uh, love and respect and head and body and uh, submission and sacrifice, they all underscore this kind of mutuality. And I would say in response to that question, yes, there is a difference. Because if anyone is ultimately responsible for this working in this way, it's the husband. But that's more of the burden. That's the burden lies upon, in that relationship, ultimately the husband to make it work this way, out of this kind of mutuality, where love and respect and head and body and submission and sacrifice function in a way that is centered in Jesus Christ and his cross. The burden lies with the husband there. So headship in that sense is just a greater responsibility to make sure that this type of sacrificial, self-fulfilling relationship works to the glory and honor of the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.